Section 22 of the Medici, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. The Medici, Volume 1 by G.F. Young. In 1489, Lorenzo attained a desire which he had much at heart. Though only 40, his health was already failing from hereditary gout. His eldest son, Pietro, showed signs of a careless and arrogant disposition, which did not promise well for his success as a ruler of Florence. Lorenzo was therefore anxious to create a second prop to the family fortunes, so that if Pietro should fail, Giovanni, his second son, might be able to retrieve the failure. If he could get the latter made a cardinal, the family wealth and influence would probably eventually carry him to the papal throne when the family fortunes would be assured. It was therefore a great satisfaction to Lorenzo when, by his influence with Innocent VIII, he, in this year, though Giovanni was only thirteen, succeeded in getting the latter created a cardinal, the youngest there had ever been. In 1490, there began in Florence the preaching of the man who was in a few years to become the chief power among Florentines. Savonarola, a native of Ferrara, had taken up as a special mission the task of recalling the inhabitants of the cities of Italy from their luxurious and profligate ways. He had preached this message first at Florence, as the most important city at that time in Italy. But unable to get the Florentines to listen to his exhortations, he had departed for several years to preach the same message at Brescia, Reggio, Genoa, and other places. And it was Lorenzo who, in this year, 1490, recalled him to preach again his message of reform in Florence. And this fact should be borne in mind as counterbalancing the baseless statements so often made as to Lorenzo having led the Florentines into profligacy. Nor, even when Savonarola's preaching was aimed against himself, did Lorenzo resent it. Preaching against the prevailing licentiousness of the times, Savonarola, in predicting the downfall of the various states of Italy before a foreign conqueror, unless a general reformation of morals took place, included among the dynasties who were thus to fall not only the king of Naples, the Sforza of Milan, the Este of Ferrara, and the occupant of the papal throne, but also the Medici at Florence. Yet Lorenzo showed no resentment and took no steps to stop his preaching, though his paramount influence with Pope Innocent VIII would have enabled him at any moment to procure Savonarola's removal. In the following year, Lorenzo gave a further example of worthy command over himself. In that year, Savonarola was elected prior of the monastery of San Marco, the monastery which had been entirely built and endowed by the Medici. It was consequently customary for the prior on being elected to pay a complimentary visit to the head of the Medici family. Yet when Savonarola, deeming this a worldly and unseemly custom, declined to observe it, Lorenzo treated this discourtesy with dignified forbearance, only saying with a smile, See now, here is a stranger who has come into my house, and will not deign even to visit me. Nevertheless, he showed good will to the prior, often attended his services, and gave as liberally as heretofore to San Marco. During these two years, 1490 and 1491, Lorenzo was greatly harassed by the quarrel between the King of Naples and the Pope, and by the strenuous labor it involved on his part to keep them from coming to an open rupture. 
King Ferrante persistently evaded compliance with the terms of the treaty which he had made with the Pope in 1486, and Lorenzo had to exert all his powers of persuasion with Innocent VIII to prevent him from endeavoring to enforce it. At length, however, in February 1492, Lorenzo's efforts to bring them to a better understanding were successful, and they agreed to a mutual settlement of their differences, which set this matter at last at rest. This completed Lorenzo's work for the maintenance of peace in Italy. He had in 22 years perfected that which his grandfather had begun, and created between Venice, Milan, the Pope, and Naples a firm balance of power which, so long as his influence watched over it, would keep Italy at peace. But Lorenzo had done more than this, and to protect Florence from the miseries of war, had created a more permanent safeguard, one undreamt of by Cosimo. Instead of the chronic enmity with her neighbors, which had hitherto always been Florence's condition, Lorenzo, a master in conciliatory action, had in the course of 22 years gradually established friendly relations with Siena, Lucca, Bologna, Faenza, Ferrara, Rimini, Perugia, and Citi di Castello, thus encircling Florence with a ring of friendly states and a more lasting guarantee for her peace than even a general balance of power. These achievements had brought Italy to the condition referred to by Gicciardini as the most prosperous experienced for a thousand years, and had made Lorenzo recognized even beyond the Alps as the leading statesman of his age. But Lorenzo the Magnificent has a greater claim to fame than any which is derived from his achievements in the political sphere. It is in the domain of learning and art that his chief honor will ever rest, and the former especially was the main interest of his life. However, much controversy may rage around the deeds of the Medici. There is one cause in regard to which it will be difficult to deny that they have deserved unstinted honor and gratitude from Europe at large, that of the resuscitation of learning and in particular for their rescue, at great cost to themselves, of a mass of invaluable literary treasures belonging to the classic age, just in time before the spread of Turkish misrule over all the eastern countries of Europe after the fall of Constantinople had time to work its natural effects. For a very few decades of Turkish dominion over these countries would have caused all those treasures to disappear forever. Carried out by four generations, there were in this matter two stages. The time of Lorenzo, notwithstanding all the enthusiasm of the brilliant coterie he gathered around him, can scarcely be called a time of learning, such as that which followed in the time of Leo X, Erasmus, and Scaligers. It was too early for that result. In the case of the first three of the four generations, the resuscitation of learning has reference to the splendid work done in unearthing and making known the materials by which alone later generations were enabled to become times of learning. Cosimo, Piero, and Lorenzo did this portion of the work. It remained for Lorenzo's son, Leo X, to conduct his age to the further step of becoming a time of learning through the labors of those who had gone before. The assistance which Lorenzo gave to this work was unbounded. Large, as had been the amounts which his father and grandfather had given to this subject, that which Lorenzo gave was still larger. It has been computed that in the 35 years, from
from the recall of Cosimo in 1434 to the death of Piero in 1469, the family, over and above what they spent in the search for and rescue of manuscripts from the East, had given from their private fortune for the public benefit in the shape of institutions to assist learning and similar objects, a sum equal, in our present money, to nearly three million pounds sterling. To this, Lorenzo's own expenditure on the same object has to be added. And some idea of its extent may be formed from the amount which he gave annually for books alone. Mr. Walter Scaife says, Allowing for the difference in the value of money, Lorenzo's annual expenditures for books alone amounted to from £65,000 to £75,000 sterling. He sent the celebrated Giovanni Lascaris twice to the Orient for the express purpose of discovering and purchasing ancient manuscripts. On his second voyage, Lascaris brought back 200 Greek works, as many as 80 of which were not up to that time even known. But this was only one item in the process. Not only had such manuscript books to be searched for in eastern countries, but to be of any use in the spread of learning, copies of them had to be multiplied, and so an army of copyists were maintained by Lorenzo for this purpose, and kept constantly at work. And then again, there were colleges and other similar institutions to be founded for the assistance of those who had the scholar's instinct, but could not afford the necessary books or the expense of their own maintenance while studying. Among other institutions of this kind, Lorenzo founded the University of Pisa, which by his liberality to it, he made the most celebrated university of that time in Europe, except that at Florence. When he was only 23, during the time when he and Giuliano were chiefly renowned for their splendid pageants and festivities, he went, at the latter end of 1472, to Pisa to found this university, and stayed there a long time employed on this work, himself taking the direction of the new university. The state gave an annual grant to it of 6,000 florins. But, as this was altogether inadequate, Lorenzo gave, to supplement it, more than double that amount out of his private fortune, and by this means obtained for its professors some of the most eminent scholars of the age. But his work at Florence in this direction was still greater. It was at Florence, and in the cause of the Greek language and literature, that the labors of Lorenzo on behalf of learning culminated. Roscoe tells us that, while the University of Pisa was for the study of the Latin language and those branches of science of which it was the principal vehicle, it was at Florence only, in all of Italy, that the Greek language was taught, and that there was established a public academy for Greek by means of which the knowledge of the Greek tongue was extended, not only through all the rest of Italy, but through France, Spain, Germany, and England, from all which countries numerous students attended at Florence, who diffused the learning they had acquired there throughout Europe. To this Greek academy at Florence, Lorenzo gave lavishly, and for its welfare labored persistently. Establishing as its professors such celebrated men as the eminent Johannes Agoropoulos, Theodorus Gaza, Demetrius Chalcondylus, and others. The celebrated William Grochen, afterwards professor of Greek at Oxford, and Thomas Linusser, the first English scholars who learnt Greek, acquired it at Florence under these great teachers. All this gives us some idea of how great was the cost of such work as the resuscitation of learning. And when joined to Lorenzo's large expenditure on the encouragement of art and on state expenses other than those 
for which he was reimbursed, it caused even the Medici wealth to be heavily reduced, so that Lorenzo the Magnificent died a very much poorer man than his father. But it was money well spent. In his own speech on becoming head of the family, made in reference to the large amount which his father and grandfather had drawn out of the family funds to spend on works of public utility, may be made applicable to himself. Some would perhaps think it would be more desirable to have a part of it in their purse, but I conceive it to have been spent to the great advantage of the public, and I am therefore perfectly satisfied. And to the very last, Lorenzo's ardor in this cause of spreading a knowledge of learning remained unabated. The ruling passion, strong in death, gained another example in his case. As the two closest of his friends, Angelo Poliziano and Pico della Mirandola, stood weeping by his bedside as he breathed his last, his dying words were, I wish that death had spared me till I had completed your libraries. But Lorenzo's assistance to the cause of learning did not end here, or with help which he shared with his father and grandfather. The honor which literary men gave to him was not merely that given to a great patron whose wealth was ever at the service of learning, but was in even greater degree the honor paid to one who was himself an author of literary work, a leader in their own sphere. It is only in recent years that it has become appreciated how high is the place taken by Lorenzo in this respect. Modern opinion, however, credits him with having more of the poetic spirit than any other man of his time, and with having been the leading poetic influence of his age. Thus, the most recent authority on the subject says, His, Lorenzo's, sonnets and odes, canzoni, are of the finer quality than any similar verse since the death of Petrarch, and one seems to catch in them at times an echo of the less highly finished but also less self-conscious work of the pre-Petrarchian age, the Dolce Stil Nuovo of the expiring 13th century. Both he and his friend, Polizian, had felt something of the invigorating influence of the racy Florentine folk songs, and if Lorenzo had lived free from the entanglements of politics and statecraft, the course of the Cinquecento poetry might have taken another turn. Unfortunately, the fashion was left to be set by the courtly poets, by whom it was led downwards to the depths of the Seicentismo, with its conceits, its false taste, its insincere sentiment, and general lack of all masculine quality. All of Lorenzo's efforts as a writer were employed to put an end to the depreciation of the Italian tongue as compared with Latin. As a boy of 17, he had declared his belief that this was practicable. In a remarkable letter written by him in 1466 to his friend Federigo of Naples, he defended what was then the vulgar tongue, declaring that the Tuscan language possessed all the necessary qualifications for literary use, and proving his point by examples from Dante, Petrarch, and Boccaccio. And he urged that the language of Tuscany, so graceful in its youth, might be made to attain still greater perfection in its maturity if only the Florentines would earnestly strive to this end. All his writings were intended to assist this object, and it is chiefly due to these efforts of his that the Italian language occupies the position it now does, instead of the lower plane on which it stood in his day. Lorenzo's poetical writing covered a wide range. He was a devoted lover of nature and of country life, and all of his best works deal in some form or another with such topics. He wrote the well-known poem of the Ambra, 
a mythological poem on the building of his much-loved villa at Poggio a Cayeno, the poem being named after a little island in the adjacent stream of the Ambrone, and being a description of the joys of the country life and of the delightful springtime in Tuscany. The Caccia col Falcone, the doings of a hawking party, La Nencia de Barbarino, on Tuscan peasant life, which Simon styles a masterpiece of true genius and humor. Bayom, a burlesque, and many other poems, also numerous sonnets and love songs, poems of his youth, mostly inspired by his romantic but unimpassioned love for Lucrezia Donati. Nothing came amiss to his muse. He could write with equal ease pastorals and devotional poetry, sonnets and carnival ditties, hunting songs and poems on stars and flowers, and all showing true poetical feeling. Lorenzo's writings, occupied so largely with that country life of which he was so fond, open up the pleasantest side of his character. While here, all events, we have the satisfaction of being on ground where controversy cannot enter, since whatever a man's writings show of himself is definite and incontrovertible. Speaking of how Lorenzo's love of nature and sympathy with the feelings and life of the country people show themselves in his poetry, Mr. Armstrong says as follows. As examples of this may be taken the stages in the Rosebud's life from his poem Corinto, or a wider theme, the annual migration of the flocks to the upland pastures. The flocks pass bleating up the mountain paths, the young lambs trotting in their mother's steps, the one, just newly born, is carried in the shepherd's arms, while his fellow bears a lame sheep upon his shoulders. A third peasant is riding the mare with foal, carrying the posts and nets to guard the flocks from wolves. The dog runs to and fro, proud of his post as escort to the party. Then comes a little touch of nature, unidealized. The flock is shut within the nets, the shepherds fall to their meal of milk, rolls and biscuits, and then fall fearlessly asleep and snore all night. Equally well can the poet describe a winter scene, the crackling of the leaves beneath the hunter's feet, his quarry vainly seeking to hide its tracks, the fir tree standing green against the white mountains, or bending its branches beneath its load of snow, the laurel standing young and joyous amid the dry, leafless trees, the solitary bird that still finds a hiding place and the stout cypress which is doing battle with the winds, the olive grove on a balmy sunny shore whose leaves show green or silver according to the setting of the wind. Lorenzo finds his materials in the troubles of life as in its joys. He enters keenly into the sufferings of the peasant and of animals. He describes one of the woodland fires common in mountain districts, a chance spark of the flint catching the dry leaves and then spreading to the brushwood and then gaining on ancient oak and ilex, destroying the shadowy forest homes, the pleasant nests, the lairs where generations of wild things have stalled themselves, and then the wild rout of terror-stricken creatures bellowing and shrieking down the echoing dale. At another time, we see the Ombrone in flood and its turbid yellow waters grinding stone on stone, bearing along the plain its mountain spoil of trunk and bough. The peasant's wife is just in time to free, with trembling hand, the cattle from the stall. She carries pickaback, her weeping little son. Behind her is her elder daughter with the poor household store. 
the old shed floats bobbing on the water's crest. It is the close observance of nature which makes Lorenzo's poetry ever fresh, whether he is describing ants or bees or a line of cranes stretching across the sky towards a sunny spot, or the hunted deer taking its last desperate leap in the straining eyes of the baffled dogs, or the oxen struggling with their load of stone and logs, or the tired bird falling into the sea because it fears to light upon a ship. End of section 22